Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Late night television is something that I grew up watching and at times worshiping. I mean, there are ways in which Johnny Carson defined a certain kind of cool. And then David Letterman came along and defined cool a different way by essentially rejecting the notion that there was anything good on late night television and that he might as well be throwing watermelons off of tall buildings for all that it mattered. And I thought that was completely brilliant too. And like a lot of American males, I tried to be David Letterman for a while. But it's changed now, right? It's just not as fertile in terms of ratings and money and resources and influence. We're gonna talk about the past, present, and future of late night TV. Today's show is about late night television. Wrapped somewhere in that topic is the whole question of whether there is such a thing as late night television. So many things have kind of migrated to timeless streaming slots. There are also questions about whether networks kind of are preparing to abandon ship around 10 p.m. So many things. There are some big changes going on, a shrinking of audience size, shuffling of personnel. Some people are ending their time on late night television. Let's hear a little montage of that before we get going. Here's some people who are saying goodbye. This will be my last year hosting the Late Late Show. Don't you dare. (laughs) I really think in a year from now, that'll be a good time to to move on and and see what else might be out there. Hi, welcome to Full Frontal. I'm Samantha B. Full Frontal with Samantha B has been canceled at TBS. The recent seventh season of the Emmy-winning late-night series will mark its last at the cable outlet. So we're going to go on a little summer hiatus. What are your guys' plans? Oh, summer hiatus, yeah. Listen, I spent the last couple days shotgunning various alcohols, so I'm going to probably keep doing that over the summer. A comedic pair who shook up the late-night talk show scene are ending their program and their partnership. Daniel Baker, known as Desus Nice, and Joel Martinez, known as the Kid Mero. The tweet said they'll be pursuing separate creative endeavors moving forward, calling it a good run. I mean, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, it is my uh, final show, final episode of the, of the Daily Show with uh, Trevor Noah. And um, don't be sad. I know a lot of people are sad, but please don't be sad. Uh, you should be happy that an African leader is peacefully leaving power. <laughs> That's never a guarantee. That's never a guarantee. Thank you again for being here, bro. This has been fun. All right. I think all of that was self-explanatory, but in case it wasn't, yes, you were hearing James Corden and Samantha Bee, Desus and Marrow, and uh, Trevor Noah, of course, leaving The Daily Show. Here to talk about the present and future and maybe a little bit of the past of late night television, Eric Deggins is NPR's television film critic. Uh, He's been with us other times before. Eric, welcome back. 
Happy to be here. So, so much has gone on here, but I mean, you know, I, I'm older than you are. I grew up with Johnny Carson and all the people who tried to be Johnny Carson after him. And there was sort of a sense that late night television was this place where production values dropped pretty fast. Uh, you could <laughs> you could hold up a piece of cardboard with a joke taped to the back of it, you know, and, and, and just do that. And you could kind of get away with it. And standards and practices loosened up a little bit. You could tell a joke that Andy Griffith wouldn't tell, you know. And, and so that was sort of some of the fun of late night television. I think it was also designed not to be overstimulating because people were kind of watching it as they fell asleep. But so much has changed. So much has altered in the media universe. And, and I guess maybe the first question is, you know, when you, you think about those departures and where things are right now, how optimistic are you that there's, there'll be something recognizable as, say, late night comedy shows five years from now? Well, it's hard to know because late night television has historically, I mean, I know that for people who are just consumers, they think of it as, oh, late night television is Johnny Carson or late night television is David Letterman or it's Stephen Colbert. But for those of us who study this stuff, it's really about like, what is the purpose of the show, Mm -hmm. right? So when Johnny Carson was the king of late night, late night television was a capper to the day for viewers. It was a way... For people to kind of ease into slumber and sort of uh, ease into slumber was like the coolest cocktail party available, mm. right? He was an affable host. He'd bring on these great celebrities. They poke fun. And in the monologue, you got a chance to hear Johnny sort of give his take on the, what had happened that day. And, you know, we, we didn't have the internet, obviously. We didn't have all these things telling us about what happened this day. So for some people, you know, it might even be the first time they were hearing about what happened that day from Johnny Carson and his really smooth kind of delivery. So then David Letterman comes along and his show is aimed much more towards young viewers and in particular aimed towards college age viewers and maybe like really hit high school viewers. <laughs> and it's a pretty male thing. You know, he didn't have hardly any female writers on the show and the target audience was male. Now the question is like, what is late night? What What's the purpose of a late night TV show? You know, when Stephen Colbert goes on and makes fun of Trump, he is, I, you know, I noticed this when all the shows came back, right as there was this massive conflict inside the House of Representatives over whether Kevin McCarthy would be elected Speaker of the House. And what I noticed about Seth Meyers and Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert's monologues was that they were all telling me stuff I already knew. I had se- I'd already seen the clip on CNN of one of the Republican legislators being pulled back from lunging at Matt Gates, and every one of them made a joke about it. But I already knew what had happened. They they were they weren't really telling me anything new, and the joke was you know it was funny. It was funny, but you know so like I'd already kind of thought of that. You know what I mean? So I think part of the problem that the genre has right now. Is it's hard to know, like, what's the purpose of a late night TV show now? And what's the audience? Who are they targeting? Because young people these days are not watching conventional television. They're watching TikTok and they're watching Instagram. They're watching shows on demand online. They are not showing up at a specific time to watch a show that airs after 10 p.m., which has kind of been our definition of late night television over the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, it's sort of weird. And we'll come back to this later when we're talking about Saturday Night Live, because I think it's true there, too. But you know, when you look at numbers for these shows, sometimes you'll see these 
numbers like, I, I don't know, like Colbert gets 1.3 million people. 375,000 of them are in the target demo, which is like usually 25 to 54. That means a lot of people <laughs> who are listening are not in the target demo. And I'm assuming right. a lot of those people, and it's probably not a lot of younger people because as you say, they're doing their TikTok. They're doing you know a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I think right. there's the older audience. You know, I mean, if you're a baby boomer or, or, or all the way down to Gen X, you know, you grew up with late night television, you, either Carson or Letterman or pick your poison, you know. And so you've got a little bit of that habit. You've got a little bit of that practice. And and so this group of people who are not terrifically interesting to advertisers are probably hanging around, making up a substantial part of at least the first viewing audience. Right, right. You also can't lose sight of the fact that, like, even for me, you know, somebody who's an older viewer, I watched all that on YouTube. They put everybody's monologues on YouTube now. So I don't I don't watch Colbert when he airs on CBS. I watch Colbert's monologue hours before it airs on CBS because they post it on YouTube. And I wouldn't be surprised that if there were a lot of younger viewers, if they if they are fans of these guys, they're they're that's where they're seeing their work. They're they're seeing them on their TikTok channel or or on Instagram or on YouTube. So where people are watching it is is different. Who's watching it is different. And I think that's true for all of linear television. The ratings for 60 Minutes interview of Prince Harry came in. 11.2 million people watched that interview, which is a lot of people. But only 2 million of them were in the target demo of 25 to 54. That meant 9 million people who watched that show was were older than 55. So I think that's what's happening all over linear television is that the people who are still watching it are mostly older. Yeah. And and I think also people's understanding of time differs. You know, Eric, I remember I was teaching at Trinity College and during the 08 political campaign. And there was that night where Obama as kind of a, a closing the deal thing. He, I think, preempted. He took over an hour on all three major networks. Um, I think I have that right. And it was like on a, the Tuesday night before the Tuesday of the election, something like that. And I remember saying to my class of college students, OK, so it's Tuesday night. And this is no way. You know, it's Tuesday night, nine o'clock. So you guys got to make sure you watch it Tuesday night, nine o'clock. And they were looking at me like, what are you talking about? We just watch it whenever we want to watch it. Exactly. And I realized I was the old guy. They were the young people. <laughs> but but we we also understood what late night television was in that way. It's it was the thing you were going to do from 11.30 to 12.30 before you went to bed or, you know, whatever your relationship was or whether whichever franchise you were watching. It was sort of, that's how I'm going to allocate that particular hour before I go to bed. Right. And it's nothing to do with that anymore. I mean, I feel like whatever they make right now, they have to make something different. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's so interesting about this is that at, at one time in TV history, when a show aired would determine the content of it because when a show aired would determine who was watching it. So morning television or daytime television was oriented more towards women because the idea was that moms and housewives and people like that would be watching daytime television. So it's mostly needed to be geared towards women because that was the biggest potential audience. Men were off working or at school or whatever, right? And then the idea is that, you know, at the end of the day, that's when men are available to be captured. 
and you know they might be the breadwinners in their home so advertisers would be interested in getting their attention and that's when you have more male-centered shows like the late night talk shows so then that genre develops a sensibility and it develops a way of handling comedy and talking about topical issues and presenting television you know david letterman and johnny carson defined broadcasting in really important ways so then that becomes what defines late night television it's not so much when it airs it is more how it talks about things and the format of the show if you have a guy who's sitting behind a desk who welcomes in celebrities and talks to them and has a live band that provides the music and it's a party kind of atmosphere that's considered a late night show no matter when you watch it because johnny carson and David Letterman established this sort of unshakable formula. So now the question sort of becomes that now that we're untethered from when it airs or when that potential audience is available, what do we do with the new freedom that we have? Is there so much freedom that it kind of cannibalizes the genre and you can't recognize a late night show for a late night show? I mean, I think there's still a sense that it's got to be topical. It's got to talk about stuff in the news. It's got to be funny. It's got to be revelatory in some way. And, you know, it may or may not include other celebrities coming on the show and talking about themselves or talking about the world or, you know, talking about their latest project, right? I think that's sort of the sense of what a late night TV show is. But, you know, there are shows like that that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres had a show like that that aired at four o'clock, three o'clock mm -hmm. in a lot of time zones. That wasn't considered a late night show. Why wasn't it considered a late night show? Well, because in typical TV land, it didn't air on late night, but also because its target audience was female and the way it talked about issues was lighter. And, you know, it just had a totally different tone and sensibility than a show like Stephen Colbert's Late Show. So now I think the challenge for people who make this kind of television is, you know, what is a late night TV show and how can you create a show that draws people, the traditional viewers on the traditional television, you know, like CBS has got to hire somebody to take over for Corden. And I was just talking to a CBS executive yesterday. I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles now for a conference of TV critics. And I was just talking to a CBS executive yesterday about this and they're taking pitches from producers to say, okay, what kind of show are we going to do once Corden leaves? And, you know, there's one of the ideas in the air is maybe, you know, you don't have one host. Maybe you have rotating hosts, whatever. You know, I mean, they're at the point where they're just willing to consider whatever creative, interesting idea people might want to pitch to them. But the point is, you know, they're willing to say, okay, you know, present us something we haven't seen before. Present us something that's different than the mold. So I think that's kind of where we are. This is a crucial moment for late night television because between replacing Corden and replacing Trevor Noah, both of those are owned by Viacom Global or Paramount Global, I think is the, the company's name now. So this company is going to make two really important decisions that are going to affect the face of late night television for weeks and years and months you know, to come. And so they have to choose wisely and they have to choose in a way that allows the genre to go forward at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty about what even a late night show is or what it should look like 
So I don't envy the producers and, and executives who have to figure out how to make something out of this chaos. Right. And this, let's sort of take a look at who's still standing and who's not, because I think that's important as well. So Jimmy Kimmel's still there, Bill Maher, Andy Cohen, John Oliver, not exactly a late night show, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon, Gutfeld, we're going to deal with him in the final segment, Colbert, you know, Letterman has his Netflix show now, Amber Ruffin we're going to talk about in a second, the problem with Jon Stewart. But it, Outside of Amber Ruffin, I just named a whole bunch of white guys. Who's not there anymore? Trevor Noah, Samantha Bee, Hassan Minaj, Jesus and Mero, Lily Singh, Larry Wilmore. <laughs> you know, I Chelsea mean, Handler. Yeah, there you go, Chelsea Handler. So, and and we some of the names that we just said also, I think, are some of the people who might be guest hosting the Daily Show while they, they figure out their problem. But you right. know, you look at that and you think this. Either because the white guys are you know, hitting off better tees from the beginning or because there's something that is militating against the success of more diverse hosts. So as a critic, I mean, what do you make of that disparity? Well, you know, I wrote about this for NPR.org back when Trevor Noah first announced that he was leaving The Daily Show. And I, and I just think what what's happening is the genre is constricting just as it was starting to open up for women and people of color. And so unfortunately, a lot of the shows that we're seeing kind of drop off are shows that were hosted by women or shows that were hosted by people of color. And, you know, I think Jimmy Kimmel is kind of fascinating. I'm hoping to spend time with him while I'm here in LA because he is the grand old man of late night TV now. He is the longest tenure late night TV host. And there was a time when no one would have made that bet. Like no one would have thought that Jimmy Kimmel would be the guy who would still be around after David Letterman left, after Jay Leno left, after Conan O'Brien left. Nobody would have have ever perceived that. But he's changed a lot. He's grown into the role, and the the genre has constricted, so it is harder for new people to challenge the folks who are at the top of their game. So you know Fallon and Kimmel and Stephen Colbert, and even Seth Meyers to a certain extent, they're all sitting on top of a legacy that was established by the people who came before them. And that's why they're able to do what they do. The problem is, is other shows, the way people consume TV has changed so much that it is hard to make money on shows that are in the linear space like this. So I think just as the show's that weren't part of this rich legacy were starting to open up to women and people of color, the genre starts to constrict. It becomes harder and harder to make money on those shows. And so all of a sudden, we find that those opportunities are being closed off for people of color. So one of the people who probably, I mean, who already has something and might be in a position to get more in the continuum that we're describing right here is this person. About something that happened to me this weekend, and I want to do it in a song. I was shopping at the Whole Foods, scrolling down aisle three, and I saw a white woman. She was walking up to me. I knew just what was coming. Baby, it was too late. I knew the next words out of her mouth were gonna make a girl irate. She asked me, Excuse me, where's the bread? I rolled my eyes. And this is what I said. Do I look 
like I work here Baby, I don't work here I don't have a name tag Freaking raggedy hags Do I look like I work here? Lady, I don't work here Black people also go to the store so that's Amber Ruffin, Eric Deggins, for people who don't know the name, explain who she is and what's going on with her and her career. Yeah, Amber's amazing. So she was, she is still a writer on, a producer on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And one, one of the cool things that Seth has been doing, you know, he realizes the way white men have sort of dominated this space. So he has taken younger staffers and female staffers and people of color and gay staffers and, and allowed them to do their own bits on the show. Uh, so that they could be featured a little bit and he could shift a little of a spotlight to them. So Amber Ruffin had a couple of great bits. She has one that called that's called Amber Says What, where she comes on and says, you know, I was watching the vote for the House of Representatives speaker and they didn't vote for him. And I said, what? You know, and so that kind of took off. And then they, they had another bit with her and Jenny Hagel, who is a Latina and is gay, where they had jokes that Seth can't tell. So Amber, who's black, and, and Jenny would tell jokes about gay people and Latinas and black people that a white guy couldn't tell, mm-hmm. right? That was their joke. So that bit kind of took off. And so everybody could see that Amber was kind of a talent. So Peacock sort of picked up a show that she spun off, but they're on streaming. And she's just an amazing talent. She's a fresh voice. She's an unapologetically black woman who talks about black culture and pop culture and politics and how all those things intersect. But now she seems to be at the point where it's like either NBC needs to give her a show or maybe she needs to think about going somewhere else. And, and, you know, I don't know what she's thinking. I haven't talked to her in depth about this, but I do think that she's kind of reached a point where all the hip people in show business know about her show and love it and want to see her take the next step. And the question is, is the next step a late night TV show for her? Because I think one of the things that Trevor Noah's departure and James Corden's departure is teaching us is that these shows are a grind. And people who can make a lot of money and be famous doing other things will often choose to do it because doing the show is hard and it doesn't make enough money to to justify them staying in the job. Trevor Noah is going to make much more money as a touring stand-up comic than he ever would as the host of The Daily Show. And, you know, it was my sense from talking to people close to what happened there that he wanted to work less. He wanted more weeks off. He wanted to work fewer days in the week and he wanted to get paid more. And they were like, no, Uh, you know, the the viewership of the show just doesn't justify that. And James Corden is another person who's, you know, created TV shows, produced TV shows, starred in TV shows, starred in films. He has a lot of options. Right. You couldn't imagine Johnny Carson doing anything other than hosting the Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. You couldn't imagine David Letterman doing anything other than hosting his late night shows. But you can't imagine James Corden doing 10,000 other things. (laughs) And and so Sondheim uh, musicals, Broadway shows, he's done all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And Amber Ruffin is sort of at this crucial point where she has to decide, is she going to want to do other things or is this the best thing that she could possibly do? And how do you take that forward? We're going to grab a break here with Eric Deggins. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Okay, that's obviously the theme music to Saturday Night Live. If you, you know, I mean, you should have a Pavlovian response by now, understanding that. With us is Eric Deggins, NPR's television critic. So we've been having a conversation about sort of essentially weeknight, late-night television. But Saturday nights are a little bit different, and they're also a little bit the same. Saturday Night Live is in season 48 right now. There's been a lot of loose talk about maybe it would end at 50 seasons or maybe just Lauren Michaels would leave after 50 seasons. They've also had some major departures. They don't really necessarily have a huge breakout star right now. Keenan Thompson has kind of been holding down the fort. Maybe their best known cast member at this point, Bowen Yang, is kind of a breakout. Maybe there's some other people that I'm skipping over. If so, sorry. But Eric Deggins, this is another long-running franchise, a really long running franchise that doesn't necessarily know, I don't think at the moment, whether it's going to be here in, say, even three or four years. Well, I don't know. I guess what I would say about Saturday Night Live is what has, one of the things that I think has kept Saturday Night Live going is that NBC could never replace it with anything that has nearly the cultural impact, pop culture impact of Saturday Night Live. So it wouldn't make sense to cancel that show until it was on its very, very last legs. And it's not it's not near that now. I mean, you know, the show has gone through a lot of transition periods where the cast might not be as scintillating as it was in the past. And they're rebuilding and they're trying to figure out what their new voice is. They've had many moments like that in the history of the show. And it seems like that's what they're going through right now. And, you know, Lauren Michaels said that basically the pandemic sort of kept people from leaving the show who normally would have left years earlier because Hollywood was at, was at a standstill. And, you know, quite naturally, the people who were already on Saturday Night Live wanted to stick with something that they knew was reliable and that was working for them. So once the pandemic eased and, you know, more film projects emerged and people had more opportunities they decided it was time to leave and they all left around the same time. That's what he says. I don't know. My sense is that there's something more to the way all the big names left the show in recent months. But be that as it may, the result for this show is that it's in an intense kind of rebuilding phase. Its recent episodes haven't been super remarkable for that reason. And there's a lot of pressure on Lord Michaels to reinvent the show one more time before there's talk about him retiring, which as you said, I think there's a sense that in the 50th anniversary of the show, he might think about retiring 
right now, what they really have to do is figure out what their new voice is for this new iteration of the show where so many ace performers have left. It's not just that they're well-known. It's that they were so good. I mean, the, the, the one thing, you know, they had a lot, they had a lot of people leave, you know, people like Kate McKinnon, who are just remarkable. She can play anyone, it seems. But they had Cecily Strong, who was, I thought, sort of an under-the-radar utility player who also could play just a wide range of people, and then she left. So so now, you know, they have all these young people who are just kind of finding their talents. They've only got one, they've got one guy, the guy who plays Trump, who seems to be a really talented mimic. Right. He He's featured a lot on camera, and that is the corner of the realm at Saturday Night Live. He's in so many sketches. He is one of the central players on that show now. So one of the rules, one of the things I think that in particular Letterman taught people is if you're worried about something, if you're worried about an issue of quality, bring it out and deal with it and have some fun with it. So season 48 began in October. The first episode was hosted by Miles Teller. And so the cold open is, and you know, to get this, you kind of have to know that Eli Manning and Peyton Manning, two brothers who are NFL quarterbacks, have been doing this thing on ESPN2 where they kind of comment on what's going on on Monday Night Football and make their own little jokes about it and bring other people on. So they did a little version of that. You're going to hear Andrew, Andrew Dismukes as Eli Manning, Miles Teller as Peyton Manning. All right, let's just play the clip. Well, we decided to check out the season premiere of SNL. There are a lot of changes at the show, which could be exciting. Let's see what they spent the entire summer coming up with. Okay, we got an establishing shot of Mar-a-Lago. Oh, good. Trump sketch. Way to mix it up. All right, now it looks like we got a rookie leading a senior cast member into the room. Probably going to run a simple right this way, ma'am. Right this way, ma'am. Telegraphed it. Oh, and he doesn't close the door behind him. Now, he, now, now he's trying to fix it. The new guy's fully panicking. He's just staring in the camera. Oh, God. And you know what? That might be the only time we see him tonight. Hello, I'm Governor Christy Nome, and I want to take your abortion rights. What the hell was that? The governor of South Dakota. A political impression that no one asked for. What about a fun impression like Anthony Fauci or Lindsey Graham or Rudy Giuliani? Well, those are all Kate McKinnon. Damn. I'm not necessarily a big fan of doing something really stupid and then calling attention to how stupid it is right. and try to get right. kind of a, a secondary or tertiary laugh out of that. But they are at least dealing with people's anxieties at this moment. Eric, all, in all the ways that you said, they don't really have some of the fast horses they used to ride. Yeah, and in fact, that was, in my estimation, the funniest sketch of the night. <laughs> it was them sort of anticipating all the complaints that people were going to have about how the show's not that good and sort of preempting them by saying them themselves. The thing about Saturday Night Live that is tough for people to understand, I think, is that it has to get going. And once they get going, that's how they figure out how to do it. They they can't prepare that much for the show when it's on hiatus, when they're not doing it. And you can tell because most of the time the shows, the first shows they do when they come back are not that great. It takes them a while to kind of get going, especially now with this new cast filled with people who haven't done this that much. Um, they still don't know who can play what and who's good at what. And what happens behind the scenes is that certain writers on the show start to champion certain performers who they know 
can have a great range or can pull something off or are really funny. So once you, you get something like, you know, Bill Hader, when he was on the show years ago, teamed up with one of the writers and they created this awesome character for Weekend Update. And they did a lot of great sketches together because they knew each other's comedic sensibilities and they could work together. And, you know, I, I feel like this season in particular, it's going to be a lot of stuff that doesn't feel fully baked because they are still figuring out what they're doing. Right. And and I, you know, I think the writer, by the way, was, was John Mulaney. Uh, John Mulaney, exactly. And, and, you know, but that's an interesting point because, uh, you know, e- even if you go back that far, there was a way in which Saturday Night Live could still kind of create memes, things that you could use out of context and people would know what you were referring to. So in the right. case of Stefan, if you said, well, this club has everything or maybe this <laughs> uh, w- this meeting has everything, you know, a lot of people would know what you're talking about. But the other right. day I was at a meeting here and I, I said, you know, you know, the character Alex Moffat was doing for a long time on Saturday Night Live, the guy who just bought a boat. And people looked at me like I was speaking a completely <laughs> foreign language. What in the world are you? T- Alex, who the guy who bought a what and to you know if you look at their numbers you know like the Chappelle thing which we can talk about in just a second I think they got up around 4.5 million something like that for the first night viewing of it but I don't I think Saturday Night Live's numbers are not quite what they used to be and it's one of the reasons they can't well, yeah. they can't insert something right into the culture and have everybody know what it is well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, that character that you referenced I just think that character was kind of a weak character frankly and and I don't and I don't think it's because people aren't watching Saturday Night Live as much as they used to. I think it just wasn't it wasn't a character that really resonated. You know, that's a rare thing. You know, we get used to it happening on Saturday Night Live. But that is really a rare thing for somebody to come up with a character that just resonates so strongly. Like when when Alec Baldwin originally started doing his impression of Trump, that just resonated so strongly with people and touched on so many things that people were concerned about and focused on at the time that it became this huge cultural thing. And in, in the same way that, you know, Stefan was just such an, an unusual and eccentric and, and wonderful kind of creation that it just really resonated with a lot of people. And I don't even think the performers really understood how much people love that character until they stopped doing it and they had a big farewell for it and people just really you know, it jacked into that character. They really, they really enjoyed him and, and showed how much they loved him. So I, you know, I don't think it's that. I think, I mean, you know, somebody like Eddie Murphy who came out of nowhere and instantly created classic bits that we reference today, that almost never happens. <laughs> so, but we get used to it because now it's part of the lore of Saturday Night Live. I think it's just going to take them a while to figure it out. I don't know that they're going to figure it out. And that's always the danger when you lose so many well-known contributors. It's not just that they're well-known, it's that they're so talented and they're able to create these impressions or these original characters that are just indelible. And that's that's the challenge that Saturday Night Live faces right now. So, you know, I think when they've done things in recent years that have been brilliant or interesting, an awful lot of them have been where they've been willing to go into kind of edgy and touchy areas, particularly around race. 
I thought the Black Jeopardy skit with Tom Hanks as the MAGA guy is one of the most inspired pieces of political commentary, never mind comedy, that I've seen in a really long time. And really having Chappelle and Rock there right after Trump's election for that skit in the Brooklyn apartment where all the white people are freaking out and saying this is the worst thing that's ever happened, this is this huge departure, and they're kind of, really, you think so? (laughs) Because we're kind of used to this stuff, actually. And so they brought Chappelle back, and he was good for ratings, but he also got into some pretty tricky character uh, territory around Ye and Ye's, particular Ye's anti-Semitism. And it didn't feel like the kind of win that they've gotten uh, on other occasions there. I know you wrote about this. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I felt Chappelle's monologue was minimizing some of the anti-Semitism of particularly Kyrie Irving. And it was it was contradictory. You know, one minute he would say something that was sort of try to shrug off you know, the way Kyrie Irving retweeted a link to this anti-Semitic film. Then on the the other hand, he would talk about some of the terrible things that that Ye did and acknowledge that they were terrible. But I think in the end, he minimized it enough and winked at it enough that people who are anti-Semitic, particularly people who are anti-Semitic who are fans of Kyrie Irving and Ye, felt like he might have supported their positions in a way. And my point was that in a situation like this, you have to be unequivocal. You can't you can't really give anti-Semites any kind of reason to hope that you might be on their side. And what's really necessary, I mean, particularly given the way, you know, I'm African-American myself and I try to be honest about how black people and black culture have struggled with anti-Semitism over the years. And so I think it's particularly important for a black performer to take an unambiguous stand against anti-Semitism. It is super important. And he had that moment and he didn't do it. He had that moment and he didn't do it. So from my standpoint, it was a tremendous failure. And it encouraged Dave Chappelle's fans to adopt a similar ambiguity or shrugging of the shoulders about anti-Semitism that I also thought was was terrible. And to me, it, it also showed how you know, SNL stepped up to a moment where they really could have distinguished themselves. But we already knew from Dave Chappelle's last Netflix special that he was problematic and that he was out there advancing these views. In in his last stand-up special, The Closer, you know, he was saying stuff that was transphobic and that was homophobic. So we already knew he was a problem. And now they're going to give him this Saturday Night Live monologue right after the election are you really surprised that when he steps up, he does something that is not meeting the moment in a way that you might wish he would have? Well, if we get to season 51 and Tina Fey takes over the whole thing, we'll be having a different conversation. But Eric Diggins, for now, <laughs> we have to say goodbye. She's too smart to do that. Yeah. Yes, no, I think she probably is too smart <laughs> to do that. She doesn't want to work that hard. <laughs> no, no, no. Eric Diggins is NPR's television critic. We'll let you get back to the screenings and press conferences out there in L.A., but thanks for taking time for us. Thank you for having me. So usually at this part of the show, I have to thank a few people. Yeah, it's usually two, three, four people. 
Not this time. It's me and Jonathan McVance doing this show. So, And he's running the board as technical producer. Cat Pastor isn't here right now. I should tell you, we're recording this whole thing kind of a day before it airs, which is also a little unusual for us. So let me just quickly tell you, I can't unfortunately pin down the year. I guess maybe it must have been in the 90s. I got the de- decade anyway. But for many, 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 many years, I was a contributing editor at Men's Health as one of my 18 different jobs. And so there was a day where I had to meet some editors from Men's Health in New York. They're based in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. And they're like, would always like seize any opportunity to go anywhere that wasn't Emmaus, Pennsylvania. So they wanted to meet me in New York City. So we're walking around the city talking and there was a new editor. He'd just taken over and he was a little different from the people I'd worked with in the past. He was funny, but funny maybe in a way that I was 100% comfortable with sometimes. He also smoked a lot. And, I, you know, I didn't really have a big problem with him, but I turned to my editor, a guy named Peter Moore, you know, and said, you know, as usual, keep him away from me. Keep everybody away from me. You're my editor. You're the only people I want, person I want to talk to. Anyway, that person is Greg Gutfeld. He is now, I think, you know, I think you sort of have to say, as Constant Grady, a senior correspondent uh, on the culture team for Vox, is about to tell us, a pretty unexpected, at least by a lot of us, success as in doing kind of a late night comedy show, but on Fox. This isn't the first time we've talked about this show. We talked about it right when it debuted. But Constance, since that time, Gutfeld has kind of strung together some pretty interesting numbers, at least in terms of audience size. Yeah, absolutely. Greg Gutfeld is averaging... 2 million viewers every night on Fox right now. That means that he is outperforming not just his fellow cable late-night co-hosts like Trevor Noah, he's also outperforming the network stalwarts like Stephen Colbert. He's basically the biggest name in late-night right now. Right. It's. I mean, it's a weird show in the sense that what he does is... It's, it's almost kind of a house comedy show for Fox. I mean, the format is kind of unusual. Typically, there's like, he's sitting in a sort of a circle with four guests, I think, typically. A lot of them are Fox News personalities. They're not comedians. They're not people who have movie clips they want to show anybody. They're just kind of people who are on Fox News on other shows. And then there's like some guy who's in WWE or something. Something and there's a lot of also inside Fox jokes. Like I don't know what what a reverse kill meet is, but you know apparently that's a joke that you think is really funny if you watch a lot of Fox News. But Constance, it does seem like a show that's predicated on the people who are watching it having also watched a lot of Fox News content. Yeah, it's kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like a lot of this show is just Easter eggs for other Fox content. That like if you're into that thing is really exciting to kind of get and decode. And if you're not, just we'll just whoosh right over your head. I think in a lot of ways, that's the purpose that it serves. It's a political comedy show for people who are sort of siloed into that Fox News media zone. And now they they don't have to go elsewhere for humorous commentary on their news. They can stay in the same worldview. Right. And in that sense, I mean, I'm not trying to cast any asparagus on his impressive numbers, but it's a little different from a typical late night job where you pretty much have to build the audience from scratch. I mean, Stephen Colbert doesn't inherit much. He's inheriting probably the local CBS news. And so whatever audience you get, you got to go get it here. He, this show kind of has a big bleed, I think, from from whatever's on Fox before it and just from the idea that people are Fox network fans, and they don't trust anything else anyway, so why why would they ever leave Fox? But, you know, the other thing about this, just from a point of view of format, Constance, is 
is there an audience? I can't really figure out. There's people laughing in the background, but not very many people, not as many people as you would hear, you know, on The Daily Show or whatever. I can't figure out, like, are there people there? There's definitely a live audience there. It tapes in New York City, sort of off Times Square, you can see people lining up outside the building to get into the live audience. It's actually kind of a hot ticket. I think that because the vibe of the show is a little bit laid back, I think that's one of the selling points of it, that they're sort of positioning liberal comedy as being kind of high strung and not really that funny. And this is more of a hangout show of just people who all work at this network together. Sometimes the punchlines can be sort of softer. So you get a less intense reaction from the audience. Yeah, that's a really good explanation because I've been very puzzled watching it and trying to understand, well, it's a comedy show. Why aren't people laughing a lot harder? So uh, for people who haven't heard it before or seen it before, we'll give you a little bit of this. This is the December 13th, 2021 episode. And here is Gutfeld. He's going to be talking to Brian Stelter, who I think probably was at CNN at that particular moment. I tell Chris Wallace that maybe this is not the best time to go to CNN. Like being on the Patriots and asking to be traded to the Jets. <laughs> and what a surprise. Instead of doing a segment of the, on the alleged pedophile in their midst, CNN's fabricating fart pillow uses Wallace to deflect. Chris Wallace is one of the, uh, you know, the journalists that is at Fox who stands out like a sore thumb because the network has become more and more, more radicalized, both in the Trump years and now in the Biden years. Wallace sticks out like a sore thumb. That's an unoriginal metaphor, Captain Jowls. It's been used more times than your waffle iron. You should have said, Chris Wallace sticks out like my belly when I undo my bathrobe after dinner. And Fox is radicalized? Uh, if only Weight Watchers could radicalize you, Brian. There's so many things to talk about here, but there's sort of a way in which comedy has a political divide. There's a way in which we sort of think, uh, I think those of us who are kind of left of center, we think that the comedians that we like are funny, the late night hosts that we like are are funny. We probably don't think Greg Gutfeld is funny. But I, I don't know, this is something that you wrote about a little bit. The sort of the, the I, I think we have an idea that conservatives can't do comedy, and that's clearly not right. Yeah, I think that's an idea that a lot of liberals really fell committed to in the Bush era when the Daily Show was, you know, the hippest comedic show in town. And that was so squarely aimed at doing sort of center-left satire on conservatives. But that comedic landscape has really changed in the time since then. You know, it's been about 20 years now, and things have shifted around almost by their nature. Things that seem very cool 20 years ago are going to stop seeming so cool to young people in the present. So Fox News has been trying for a very, very long time to get a conservative equivalent to Jon Stewart's Daily Show going. And with Greg Gutfeld, they seem to think they've cracked the code. Yeah. And we should say that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people on Saturday Night Live were very conservative and continue. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, not just Dennis Miller, but Victoria Jackson and John Lovitz, David Spade to some degree, pretty conservative, Adam Sandler to some degree. So it's not this is not the first time a conservative has done comedy. And Bill Burr, I think, among comedians, although I don't think he's really politically conservative, he's now kind of specialized in going out there and just shocking people with, you know, what sounds like pretty sexist commentary and 
and just anything that might violate people's sensibilities. Chappelle, as we've said, is doing the same thing. I mean, in a way, Constance, one thing that is happening is we're sort of sorting out a new landscape of things that you can say, things that you can't say, things that will alienate a certain percent of your audience. And some of these people are just kind of saying, I don't want to live with any limits at all. And that becomes their comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a strong American comedic tradition that they can sort of ally themselves with that way, right? Like, we think about Lenny Bruce getting arrested for violating censorship laws. And of course, all he was doing was saying dirty words in public, but he did serve actual jail time for that. So there's this sort of built in mythology that a figure now who is, you know, say, getting his YouTube videos demonetized because he's using racist slurs. A lot of us can say that's not the same thing Lenny Bruce was doing, but he can say, well, you know, I was sent to YouTube jail just like Lenny Bruce was sent to YouTube jail. And so I'm part of this same tradition of speaking truth to power, which is very, very exciting and feels transgressive and cool, I think, to a lot of younger people, especially younger men who are part of a very lucrative audience that the media desperately wants to tap into. I think the other thing is, and you're you're already touching on this in a way, but Comedy typically does exist in transgressive places and and kind of on the fringes rather than in the mainstream. The closer it gets to power, the more that it struggles to seem funny or or funny in the kind of transgressive way that comedy can be. And and you make the point, and I think it's a really good one in your article, that, you know, people like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver, Trevor Noah to some degree, Samantha Bee, some of these people who came of age on The Daily Show when The Daily Show was, you know, as you say, this very, during the, the Bush 43 era, this truth to power thing that was really sort of calling people out on their BS. There's a way in which those people have now migrated into what feel like slightly safer or more powerful or more mainstream spots, which may open the door to somebody like Gutfeld to call them on what he perceives to be their BS. Yeah, absolutely. I think once Steve Colbert has taken over Letterman's show, you know, he is in this position kind of as a sort of comedic patriarch. And he might still be a very funny man with still really good comedic techniques, telling good jokes. But it intrinsically all feels a little bit safer because he's doing it from such a position of power. And that young male audience that was really glued to The Daily Show and to The Colbert Report and thought that Steve Colbert was just the funniest thing in the world, that young male audience now is more interested in a figure like Gutfeld or Joe Rogan because, I think, their liberal-leaning parents consider those figures so troublesome and, and frightening. It feels edgy to them. Another thing that I noticed with Gutfeld is, you know, I mean, Colbert's a great example. So Colbert has just tremendous craft, right? He has a lot of acting training, a lot of comedy training. I mean, he can sing in productions of company. You know, he, he's just like a really, really talented guy who's really polished up what he does. You can say the same thing in different ways about people like Fallon and, and, and maybe to a different, in a different way, Kimmel and people like that. But there's a way in which Gutfeld doesn't even really sound like a comedian. He doesn't really hit his beats all that well. His delivery is odd. There are stumbles that a comedian, a professional comedian, would probably try to get rid of. And, and I wonder if that rejection of craft is also a little bit of the kind of up yours mainstream media attitude of his show. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think you're right that Gutfeld is not a traditionally trained comedian in any way. As you say, he started off as an editor and in a text-based world and really moved on from there. So his performance chops sort of rely on his charisma on the camera, which I think is there in this sort of laid-back way. But you're quite right that 
his version of a scathing monologue is going to feel less crafted and and less polished than a Stephen Colbert version of that monologue. And that does have a little bit of the sort of scrappy, we're not like big comedy, you know, we are pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps sort of ethos that I think could definitely appeal to a Fox News audience. Right. The message is almost, I'm not that good at this and I shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, this is a fascinating article and it's uh, great to meet you, Constant Grady. We thank you so much. Uh, the article is, Is the Right Winning the Comedy Wars? Constant Grady wrote it for Vox. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to the rest of you for listening to today's show. We'll be back tomorrow unless for some reason we, we don't show up. <laughs>